The following message is by Dr. J.R. Cuevas, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Take your Bibles, and I want to say in honor of uh, my son, who was born right up the freeway at the uh, Good Samaritan Hospital. Uh, take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 10. And we are going to look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. This is Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And let me read and pray, and we will get started. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away leaving him half dead. And by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion, and he came to him, and he bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper, and said, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. By our heads, not to me, but with me. And let's pray to God for his blessing upon this hour. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the word. We thank you for the words of Christ that have shaped one generation of saints after another, and we are a part of that. We thank you that we can learn the commandments, we can learn the ways of Christ through the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives, and I pray that as we hear the word, we would humbly receive it and be effectual doers of it, and be blessed in all that we do. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. I've realized that uh, the world loves to rob the church of its most precious gems and treasures and contaminate them and twist them and pervert them into looking like things that they were never meant to look like. And let me explain. The world has taken Christmas, (laughs) an event commemorating the incarnation of a savior, and made it about Santa Claus and reindeers and snowmen and jingle bells. That's not what Christmas is about. Some kid recently asked me at the school of 
Santa Claus gets arrested for breaking and entering. <laughs> I said he should. The world has taken Easter, the most important event commemorating the resurrection of the Savior. And, and you know, we just celebrated it and made it about bunnies, whether they're chocolate bunnies or marshmallow bunnies. It's taken marriage and redefined it to mean more than the union between a man and a woman. We're seeing that all over the place here. The world has taken gender, which Pastor Derek talked about in the last two sermons, and multiplied it from 2 to 57, and making it mean more than one's biological assigned gender that God has given him. The world has taken the word saint and turned it into the worship of people. The world has taken the commandment, which rightly belongs to the church, do not judge, and twisted it to mean tolerance of all activities, choices, and lifestyles. The world has taken worship, turned it into idolatry, and most pointed of all, and the reason why it's pointed is because the world knows that if they can steal this commandment from the church, then they can incriminate even Christians because of the vital place of this commandment in the life of the church and the life of every believer. The world has taken the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself and twisted it to mean what it never was meant to be, what it was never meant to be. And without a doubt, the reason why it's dangerous, the reason why we have to get this commandment right is because without the love of your neighbor, without the love of your neighbor as yourself, without the proper definition of that, there is no Christian living, period. You can't live as a Christian if you don't love your neighbor as yourself. You can't do anything correctly according to the Bible. You can't treat people correctly if you don't love your neighbor as yourself. Even the Bible says that all commandments are summed up in this, that you love your neighbor as itself. And this is why, and I'm not afraid, I'm not afraid to call him out. When Joel Osteen says, you must love God, love yourself, and love others in that order. That's, that is false teaching. On these two commandments hang the law and the prophets. Eternity is at stake. The integrity of your salvation is at stake. In 1 John 4.20 where John says, who walked with Jesus for those three years, who saw Jesus' ministry, who received Jesus' teaching, who was the disciple Jesus loved, who carried on the ministry of Jesus, who remembered everything Jesus taught him, and said, if someone says, I love God, if you say you love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. It's not just that he's immature. It's not just that he's not growing. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God who he has not seen. How do you know you have a worshipful relationship with a God you have never seen? It's because you love the image of God who you have seen. Romans 13 says, if you don't love your neighbor as yourself, you'll treat every person the wrong way. Galatians 5 says, if you don't love your neighbor as yourself, you practically won't be able to know how to use your freedom. When people always ask, how do I use my time? How do you manage your time? Don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, 
But in love, serve one another. Why? Because this is the commandment, that you love your neighbor as yourself. James 2 says that showing partiality, favoritism in the church is a result of not loving your neighbor as yourself. And if you keep all the commandments and stumble in one of them, then you become a transgressor of the whole, the whole thing. And here's the problem, is that the world has hijacked the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. And it's delineated for us, or tried to delineate for us, what love is supposed to look like. Loving your neighbor as yourself, the world says, is tolerating everything. And that's what the transgender movement is saying. To the point where they say that if you say that what we're doing is wrong, then you are committing a hate crime. Loving your neighbor as yourself, even pastors would have said this in the last several months, means sheltering in place. I heard a pastor say that a pastor I respect, who I deeply respect, whose books I read, whose books I distribute, whose teaching I use, say in a podcast, that we must love our neighbors as ourselves and not go to church. Loving people, they say, means not confronting. If you don't know, this is happening in preschools now in California, where preschool teachers are no longer, it's getting to the point, where out of love for students, you are no longer allowed to say no to a child. Instead, you say, well, we, we do it this way. Instead. Kids, by the way, we, we do get to say no to you uh, if you're here. Loving means, as some movements say, and you've, you've heard this, you've seen this, you may have been the brunt or the victim of this. Loving means protesting or not protesting. If you stay silent, you hate. If you speak, you hate. The commandment to love your neighbor as yourself was not invented by the world. It wasn't preached by the world. That belongs to the church. That belongs to Christ. And when Jesus says to love your neighbor as yourself, when he tells, when he told those 12, those 11, or however many disciples were there at the Mount of Olives, that you need to teach them all the commandments that I taught you. And that includes that we ought to love our neighbor as ourselves, the way Jesus said to love your neighbor as yourself. This belongs to the church. And what's happening is as the world's hijacked this and twisted this, Christians are now accusing one another of failing to love their neighbors as themselves. And Christians are looking to, other Christians are looking to justify their own actions as to why they did what they did to make themselves feel like They've been loving their neighbor as themselves. And so the whole point is here, as we read through this parable, is we don't let the world define the love of neighbor, and we don't let our own deceived hearts define what it means to love our neighbor. We let God do it. The commandment belongs to God. It belongs to his word. We restore it back to the church by looking at what the Bible says, specifically what Jesus says about loving your neighbor as yourself. We examine ourselves. Not based on what other people tell us. We examine our own hearts, our own love, based on what Jesus said in the Bible. Evaluate ourselves according to what he said. According to what Jesus said, are we walking in love? And from there, we walk in love. He gives a parable, and through the parable, he gives a portrait. And through this portrait, which is in your outline, in your notes, by the way, you see these eight necessary indicators of what it means to love your neighbor as yourself, what that looks like. And when Jesus says, go and do the same, it means that everything you see here as Christians, we ought to go and do 
the same. The, it's emphatic. In the Greek, it literally is, you yourself do the same. In other words, we can't look at other people and say, you need to love people. This is you. You. Jesus is talking to you, to me. We ourselves need to figure this out. Know where we're at personally as to whether or not we're loving our neighbor as ourselves, as Jesus commanded, and then to go and do it. And it's an interesting sequence here where this lawyer asks a question, and then Jesus responds by asking him a question. And then the lawyer asks a question again, and Jesus responds with a parable, and then asks him a question. And after each question... And after the lawyer answered each question, Jesus said, then do it. And so before we get into the, what does love a neighbor look like? What is this good Samaritan passage, this parable? What is it revealing about love? Let's look at the context. Let's work through this passage. The brunt of it is going to be on verses 30 through 37. But let's, let's look at what happened. Let's look at, this is an actual historical account of Jesus interacting with a supposedly expert of the Mosaic law, and this is where this parable came from. And so here's the setup. And a lawyer, in other words, a lawyer back then, not an attorney, this is someone who was supposed to be not just a follower of the law, someone who's an expert of the Mosaic law, goes up to Jesus. So back then, uh, or today, for instance, someone who's an expert of any subject would have the title doctor in front of him, right? Doctor. PhD means expert, a lawyer back then. Anybody who knew him as a lawyer would expect this guy knows a lot about the law. He's memorized the law. He's probably copied it, and he teaches it. He's an expert of the law, and he stood up, and he got this wrong already. Off the bat, he's not interacting with Jesus the right way because he doesn't come to learn from Jesus. He stood up in the midst of the crowd to put Jesus to the test asking a leading question with the intention of getting a wrong answer from Jesus. People like to do that, by the way. They ask questions not to learn. They ask questions to trap you. And whenever you ask a question, not with the intention of actually looking for the right answer, but getting someone to give the wrong answer so that you can incriminate them, then you have just fallen, like this lawyer, into utter hypocrisy. You will not grow as a Christian, if the, only, if the questions that you ask are only designed to either test somebody or bring yourself affirmation that what you're doing is right. But that's where this lawyer is, and Jesus knows that. And so, nevertheless, he does ask the most important question that you can ask, which the rich young ruler later on in Luke also asks Jesus. And he says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It is the most important question you can ask in life. The most important question you can ask in life is how to keep it. The most important thing you can have in life is life. We're all headed to death. From dust we came to dust we return. And the question to ask that we need the answer to is what can we do to make sure we don't end up in the grave forever? That is the most, the most important question to have correctly answered in our own life. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? He wasn't wrong with the question. He was wrong with the motive. And Jesus knows. 
And so he tells the law expert, he responds with a question. He says, what's written in the law? You're supposed to be an expert. What's written in it? How does it read to you? Jesus won't be tested. He won't fall into the trap. He asks a question. He responds to a question by asking a question. Jesus wasn't the one who quoted Deuteronomy 6.5 here, where he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he wasn't the one who quoted Leviticus 19.18, where God says to love your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer did. He made the lawyer answer his own question. And he answered correctly because you can't read the Old Testament properly and precisely and not come to that conclusion. When you read through the whole Old Testament, you understand this, that everything hinges on two things as a Christian. Christian living hinges on two things. You love God and you love your neighbor. If you fail in any of those two, you've failed in everything. And he knows that. And Jesus says, you know the law. What does it say? It's amazing how many questions in life would be answered if you just read your Bible. I love how when, when, well, no, I don't love it when this happens, when people come asking pressing questions, intending to debate, but then they don't actually want to do the hard work of reading the Bible. If you have a question, we have the same Bible. As long as you're willing to look at the Bible. Now, Jesus knew that this expert not only was supposed to be a follower of the word, he was supposed to be an expert in it. And so he says, what does the law say? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And he should have known already when he said that, that he failed in it. He's testing the son of God who he's supposed to love. And he said, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus didn't rebuke him right there and then. Jesus said, you have answered correctly. Do it. He says it. You've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. The two commandments, they're not identical. You don't love God the same way you love your neighbor, but they're inextricable. If you adhere to the first, it will result in the second. If you're not doing the second, it means you're not doing the first. And Jesus said, do this and you will live. How do you have eternal life? By keeping these two commandments perfectly. You want to know what you need to do to get to heaven? Love God perfectly and love your neighbor as yourself perfectly. You do this and you will live. Eternity is at stake. And he should have, he should have gone back to Jesus and said, I haven't done that. I haven't done that. But, like a good old hypocrite, he looks at Jesus, wishing to justify himself. Again, he's going to ask the question not to learn in the same way that when he asked the question the first time, he didn't want to learn, he wanted to test, and now he's going to ask Jesus not to learn, but he wants to justify himself. There are two things that you never do before God. Number one, don't test God. Number two, don't try to justify yourself before God, but he's doing that. This is the classic case of someone who's supposed to know all the right answers and who's completely off the mark and impure and insincere in his motives. And Jesus won't confront him in his stupidity. It's in his insincerity and his self-righteousness. By the way, there is a major theme in Luke that warns against 
self-justification that this lawyer fell into. He was wishing to justify himself. And Jesus said in Luke 16, 15, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. About the tax collector in the parable, Jesus said, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. The Pharisee tried to justify himself before God, prayed that he was better than other people. The tax collector said, have mercy on me, literally propitiate me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that one went home righteous before God. The other one didn't. And Jesus said again, chapter 5, I didn't come to call righteous, but sinners to repentance. In other words, if you think you're righteous, if you're trying to justify your own righteousness, there is no saving relationship between you and Jesus Christ. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons, self-righteous persons. And when they tried to criticize him for having an immoral woman anoint his feet, he said, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven loves little. This lawyer was trying to justify himself, and so he asks, so who is my neighbor? That lawyer knows that there were people who he loved, and there were people who he didn't. He discriminated. Back in Jewish society, they did that. They loved the Jews, their fellow Jews, and they hated the Gentiles. And he was trying to, he knew, he knew he didn't love people perfectly. He knew he didn't extend love impartially to all people. And so now he knew there were neighbors that he had who he didn't love. And he's trying to get Jesus to tell him that it's okay. And people love to do that in the church where they know they've sinned. And they try to get the pastor to tell them that what they did was okay. And so Jesus gives what's become one of the most popular and renowned parables. We have a hospital, again, named after that. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And let's work through the first part of it before we get to the actual portrait of this Samaritan person. There was a man who was going down from Jerusalem towards Jericho. And because Jerusalem and Jericho were both in this province of Judea, it can be assumed that this man who was walking down was Jewish. He was a Jewish man. He was going down from Jerusalem towards Jericho. There was an actual path, an 18-mile route that led from Jerusalem to Jericho. The reason why he was going down is because Jerusalem is above sea level and Jericho is below sea level. So you're literally going down 18-mile road, pathway, rocky pathway, and it was a hot spot for crime and robbery. So anyone who heard that there was a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho was already thinking, is he going to get in trouble? It's kind of like when I was going up in L.A., right, and we heard that someone was walking down Crenshaw Boulevard in L.A., which you don't do. It's the opposite of you saying, I was hiking up the Grand Canyon, right? When you say Crenshaw Boulevard, you don't think the Grand Canyon, Right? When you hear someone's walking down, or back then, they're going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. You're already thinking, whoa-oh, he's going to get in trouble. And he did. He did. Because as he was walking down, he fell among robbers, 
and they stripped him, took all of his clothes, they humiliated him, they beat him to take whatever they wanted from him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. Not just hurt, not just in pain, not just in agony, but half dead, likely unconscious. Severe, critical condition. This guy is teetering somewhere between life and death, and they left him there. He can't tend to himself. He's unable to heal himself. Immune system's not going to work to get him out of there. He needs immediate medical intervention. And it said, by chance, just by chance, there was a priest who was going down that road. Now, if you're a priest, if, you, if back then, when you, when you hear the word priest, okay, the priest was the one who was supposed to be in the Jewish community, in that religious community, the one who helped administer the judgments over the people, who helped perform the sacrifices and lead the people of God to worship. If there was anybody who was considered lawful, God-worshiping, godly, it was a priest. And the priest was going down that road happened to be on that same road, and when he saw him, he passed by, didn't even just walk over him, he passed by on the other side. Preposterous. That's like when I was walking with my friend uh, in our apartment complex to our car, and I literally pulled him right to the other side of the sidewalk because there was feces right there. And this guy, this priest, who was supposed to be the leader of the community, and by the way, just because someone has a pastoral title, just because someone has a religious ministry title, doesn't mean that he's lawful. Look at this priest. He's going down that road. And Jesus is using this illustration because it likely happened. That lawyer was likely like that. Do you remember all those Pharisees who, when there were people who were sick, a man with a withered hand, and they say, is it, is it okay to do that in the Sabbath? And Jesus said, what's lawful to say? a life or to kill it Ooh, can't touch him he's a corpse he's dead or i just don't want to deal with it right now priest is going down that road and he passed by and treated him like feces and then a levite who wasn't a priest but the levites also were experts in the law they were supposed to teach the law to god's people considered holy in the community exact same thing happened the levite likewise when he came to the place, again, spontaneous, he saw him, he saw the guy. And by the way, when you see someone who's half dead, it's hard to not realize that he is. Half dead people don't look alive. They can't fake it either. And the Levite, just like the priest, passed by him on the other side. Moved over. Not worth my time. Don't want to deal with it. And perhaps the lawyer was thinking, that's exactly what I have been like. Because that's what they were like. And then the Samaritan came. And from here, because at the end, Jesus said, which one? He asked them, who's my neighbor? And Jesus, at the end of the story, said, which one of these three proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell into the robbers? And obviously, the answer was the one who showed mercy, and it was the Samaritan. Here is the picture of loving your neighbor as yourself. And when we look at this guy's portrait, you see eight necessary indicators. In other words, you know you're loving your neighbor as yourself if these eight things 
are showing up. And you see it in that Samaritan's portrait. Let's see what happened. So the priest did what he did, walked to the other side. The Levite did what he did, saw him half dead, said, not worth my time. And then a Samaritan came. And by the way, okay, if you were a Samaritan back then, and we know this, we've talked about this here at the church. They were disdained by the Jews. There was so much conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans that even the Roman governor had to intervene to pacify. What happened was, was that after the northern kingdom of Israel was taken over by the Assyrians, they intermarried with the Assyrians, and eventually those people came to be known as the Samaritans, known as half-breeds of the Jewish people and they were seen as compromisers, half-breeds, lesser than the Jews, to the point where in order to insult Jesus, the Pharisees called him a Samaritan and a demon. As a Jewish person, the worst thing you could have been called up at that time was a Samaritan. The last thing that would have come to mind as a holy or lawful person is the picture of a Samaritan. And Jesus uses that, and the first indicator that you're a loving person, this is in your notes, it's number one, is that you are indiscriminate or impartial in the way you serve people. And he says, and a Samaritan came, and he was the one who showed mercy. What's so, this is, to, to that lawyer, even when Jesus introduced the word Samaritan, he would have thought, no, 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 no way. There's no way that guy can be the loving one. There's no way that guy can be the one who actually fulfilled the law. Samaritans don't do that. And this Samaritan now, if you were, right, back then trying to be culturally appropriate, if you were a Samaritan and you were walking down and saw a half-dead Jewish person, the culturally appropriate thing may have been to just kill him. The Samaritan walked up and showed mercy. That was shocking because the priest didn't, the Levite didn't, the Samaritan did. And one thing you do see in Luke is there's this exaltation of the unexpected. The Roman centurion, the sinful woman who anointed his feet and Jesus said she's forgiven. The bleeding woman who wasn't supposed to be out in society getting everybody unclean who touches his cloak and Jesus says, your faith has saved you, has made you well. Mary, you remember that story with Martha? Get my sister to help me get this house together. She's chosen the right one. Leave her alone. The prodigal son who essentially tells his dad, I want you dead. Give me my inheritance and I'm going to sleep with everybody and eat the food of the pigs. And then he comes back and there's a celebration. And then there's the tax collector in Luke 18. Then there's Zacchaeus. When, he, when Jesus brings him, goes into his house, they say, why is he going into that guy's house? But Jesus said, salvation has reached this house today. And now the Samaritan. Why would you use a Samaritan? They're thinking. It's because love, at the end of the day, is indiscriminate. To love your neighbor as yourself is indiscriminate. It's impartial. It's not colorblind, but it embraces all when it comes to race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status. It embraces all colors. And the Samaritan, who could have either killed the half-dead Jewish person, instead looks at him. It would have been even appropriate if he had done what the priest and the Levite had done. Well, they did it. I can cross over as well. It's their responsibility. 
Instead, he shows compassion. It's been said in our church, and it's unfortunate, and I do think it needs to be addressed. People have said, I'm not comfortable going to this church because there's too many Asians. And I've also had people say, I'm not comfortable being at this church because there's too many whites. I've done the stats. It's the same number. 40% each. I have to do it for school. So you're only okay to be in a church where you have people of your ethnicity in the majority. And so when people say, I don't want to come across as racist, then don't be. (laughs) You should not feel any more inclined to serve someone because of their ethnicity, that they're like you. And you should not feel any less inclined to serve someone because they're not of you or your culture or your ethnicity. Because at the end of the day, we are all human beings. And that's where compassion comes from. I remember being so bothered by this at the seminary of all places, the master seminary, where when people, whoa, what's it like to be taught by John MacArthur? I have no idea. He didn't teach any of my classes in the MDiv. <laughs> and I'm there at a shepherd's conference, and there was a classmate who was sitting right next to me who had been in class with me, who knew who I was, didn't know my name, never asked me my name, had been with class with me all year, all year long, is sitting next to me, at the shepherd's conference, we're at the gym, waiting for the screen to pop up, and he's still not saying a thing. He was, just like me, Filipino, but he didn't think I was. And so, let's just test this out. Because I speak the language fluently, I just whispered to his ear something in Tagalog, and immediately, he looked at me, he screamed, gave me a hug, and wouldn't let me go in front of everybody. And he said, why didn't you tell me this whole time I thought you were Nicaraguan? <laughs> and from then on, I'm being invited to weddings, I'm being invited to Bible studies, food's being offered to me, and I'm thinking, no, 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 this is not going to work. And then I started to pass by the other side every time I'd see him. (laughs) You're telling me that the only reason why I get to be invited to your Bible study, and by the way, if you're from the Philippines, guess what our national language is? It's English. We all speak English here. We're all in the seminary. We're all learning Greek together. Why is it that you like me more now? Because you realize I can speak your language. You can't feel more inclined to love someone because they're of your cultural upbringing, to spend time with them because they are, or less inclined to do so, we don't need to figure out who to love and serve. We love and serve your neighbor as yourself. You can choose who to marry. You can, oh, by the way, choose that one well if you're single. You can choose who to marry. You can choose where to work. You can choose who you go to the mall with. You can choose your close friends, but you cannot choose who to love. You love them all, make friends with a few, do harm to none, because you can't ultimately choose who your neighbors are. And that guy was trying to do that. Which one of these was my neighbor? Tell me it's the one who I treated rightly. 
Love is indiscriminate. That's how you know you're loving your neighbor as yourself. That's the first mark. Number two, you know you're loving your neighbor as yourself if you are spontaneous and unscheduled when you help others. This Samaritan was on a journey. He wasn't sent there. There was no report. He didn't go, oh, I want to show my social justice. I'm going to do it right now. There was nothing to prove. He was on a journey. I don't know where he was going. Either going to work, going to go see family, going to go trade. He wasn't there originally planning to see this half-dead Jewish person. He was on a journey, and he stumbled upon him and saw him and showed compassion. He ran into him. A good portion of acts of true Christian love, did you realize this, are unplanned. They happen by chance. It's easy to help people in a planned event, in a public event, when you know that people are actually going to recognize you. It's a whole lot harder when all of a sudden you run into them and it's not the right time. And, and what you're thinking, I didn't plan for this. I know you didn't plan for it. People don't suffer according to your plan. Have we realized that? It's inconvenient. And especially when no one is going to know what you did except for that person. And plus, that guy's unconscious. He's not, he's not going to know what I did. Loving people do things spontaneously. Yes, there's a place for planning. Yes, there's a place for events. But loving people don't wait till those events to make those things happen. Because people who love don't keep track of what they're doing. Jesus said, when you serve, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Don't put it on Facebook every time you do something good. We don't keep track of wrong suffered to us or wrong that we suffered from people. And we don't keep track of the things that we're doing. Love is indiscriminate. It's spontaneous. And number three, and this is the heart of it. You know you're loving your neighbor for yourself when you're compassionate towards people in their trials. The priest saw him and said, Ooh, don't know if it's the one, don't know if it's the right time. No, I don't want to do it. The Levite saw it and thought the same thing. Is this ceremonially clean? The Samaritan saw him and all that cultural baggage that should have been there went out the window because he saw a fellow human being half dead and he had compassion. And it said he felt compassion because compassion, Greek word for compassion is where you get is, is the word bowels or intestines. When you're really hungry, like I am right now, because there's just chili cook-off happening, but I'm wasting your time here by preaching a sermon, right? And your bowels are moving. I'm not wasting your time, I promise. I'm feeding you. Um, and your bowels are moving and you feel that in you. And when you think when someone is compassionate, they're not calculating it, right? When moms help their children, when moms cry over their children's joys and sorrows, I know they're not thinking, okay, I need to cry right now, right? It's an emotion that comes from the inside and flows out in action. Out of compassion, Jesus, when he saw, I mean, think about this. We're tired. Disciples are tired. Let's go to the other side. You haven't had anything to eat. And then the crowd followed them, and I'm, I would have been thinking, this is too much. I'm an introvert. Leave me alone. Jesus sees them like sheep without a shepherd, and with compassion, he teaches them all day. And then he says, they're going to walk away, and they're going to faint. So 
by the way, we need to go feed them again. Out of compassion, he spent time healing the crowds. Out of compassion, that same word, he fed the large crowds. Out of compassion, those two blind men. He wasn't waiting to see, ooh, is anybody looking right now? Out of compassion, he healed them. Out of compassion, when he saw a woman grieving over her son's death. And you know that if, you're, if you've been a mother of a child who has passed away, the grief that is in your heart. And Jesus saw that. The Creator saw that. And out of compassion, he healed her son, brought him back to life. Out of compassion, the prodigal son's father, instead of disciplining the son, when he came back, ran, embraced him, and took him back. Compassion is a mark of love. It's not just that you're indiscriminate. It's not just that you're spontaneous. It's you're compassionate. And compassion can't be planned. It can't be manufactured. You either have it or you don't. Political correctness is one thing, and it's intended to get you out of trouble. Compassion, genuine compassion, is about feeling the pain that other people are experiencing and wanting to get them out of that trouble. Motivation absolutely matters in what we do because we can do good deeds because we want to be recognized or seen for it or honored. We can do good deeds because we want to feel good about ourselves because we've done something wrong and we want to somehow feel like we can do some kind of penance to forgive ourselves. We can do good deeds because we're trying to gain credibility. We can do good deeds because we're trying to get something in return. We can do good deeds because we want to be seen as an example or as a model and we want to be followed or become influential. We can do good deeds because we want to get out of trouble or because it's a punishment. Ever seen teenagers do community service? I remember, uh, you know, back in high school when I, I did work for community, we had to for community service work at, or for high school, graduate to graduate. Uh, fulfill community service hours. I didn't mind at the animal shelter. And then I went in one day and I saw one of my classmates' names on the volunteer list. I'm thinking, she she doesn't like animals. Why'd she do this? And so the next day at school I asked, were you at lead animal shelter? Was caught drunk driving. Here's my community service. Your motives will come out over time because the truth comes out over time. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul says, the sins of some men are quite evident going before them, but for others, their sins follow. There are, other, there are people who are really, really good at hiding their wrong motives, but eventually it follows. And likewise, the deeds that are good are quite evident, and there are those which otherwise can't be concealed. At the end of the day, why you do what you do, the motivation you have for it, whether if it's out of true compassion or out of some other ulterior motive, is going to come out over time. The one who walks in God's truth and does the deeds he does to his neighbor, does it out of genuine compassion and for no other incentive. People have asked, whatever the event is, whatever the circumstances, is it wrong that I just don't care Yes, it is wrong that we don't care. And when I've spoken to, uh, whether it's here at the church or at the school, to ministers in training, and there's always this discussion of what's, the, what's ministry supposed to look like. There's, there's a lot of things that 
you do kind of go down the list. But when it comes to how many visitations do we make a week? How much money do we give to this missions organization? How many hours of counseling do we have? When do we pick up the phone? Which events do we go? Do we go to all the youth kids football games? What do we do? How do we structure ministry? And there comes a point where you cannot teach someone exactly how to become all things to all men because that comes out of a heart of love. There is a certain part of your life and your ministry that no one can tell you how to do it. The only way it's going to take its shape is if you let the compassion flow. And then it takes a shape that it does. No one can say you have to do this or you can't do this. No one can tell you how to use your time. No one can tell you how to use your money. Because compassion at the end of the day has nothing to do with yourself. It has everything to do with other people. And we cannot separate doing from feeling. It's not all about emotion, but love isn't void of it either. And I'm not saying that every single one of us is in the position to meet every single need that every single person poses before us. We can't do that. We're not in the position to do that. We don't have the resources to do that. But you know in your own heart those times where you should have and could have helped and you chose not to. You know that. No one told this Samaritan, hey, it's time. Now, this one. He did it. How did he know how to do it? It's simple. By compassion. He looked at another human being suffering, and not in a patronizing way. Oh, that, that, that's an old another story. Not in a patronizing way. He looked at a person who was half dead and saw beyond all that cultural animosity and saw another human being half dead and thought, if I were in that same position, what would I want someone to do to me? Love is indiscriminate. It's spontaneous. It's compassionate. Number four... Here's how you know you're loving your neighbor as yourself. You're practical in how you serve people. He came up to him, and he didn't just say, I feel really bad. I just don't know what to do. I mean, to illustrate what I'm about to say here, and, and this is how I knew my, my, when we were kids, my older brother really did love me, even though we were messing around in the car uh, this was right before, and I, I, by the way, I, I'm saying this because I still have the journal entry that I wrote as a second grader about it. We were messing around in the car, in the trunk. Mom was in the grocery store, and this was the day we were supposed to fly back from Hawaii to the Philippines, right, because we were still living there. And um, the uh, um, car door was open. And my foot was sticking out, or my thumb was sticking out, and my brother accidentally slammed the car door on my, on my thumb, my toe, my, my right thumb. And uh, you can imagine what happened for me. There's lots and lots of water coming out of my eyes and lots and lots of noise coming out of my mouth. It was his fault, but... He got, there was a bottle of Coke, and he got the Coke, and he poured it on my foot. Because that's what he thought would actually help. It was a spontaneous act. A stupid act, but a spontaneous one. He cared. 
And I'm really glad he got in trouble after that. <laughs> but the Samaritan saw a half-dead person and bandaged up his wounds, took his own resources, and then took the oil and the wine that should have been used for his own food and thought, well, okay, I'll use this. And as a soothing antiseptic, poured the oil and the wine over him, showed mercy. He, pract- he didn't just look and feel. He did. Christian living is intensely practical. And we love to talk about issues. We love to debate about issues. But the big question is, is what have you done to actually help the people who you keep debating about? What have you done? What are the actions? Show me. Love is practical. It shows up. Let love not be with word or tongue, but in deed and truth. Love needs to show practically. People need to see it. This whole year, what have we done to show that we care about the people who we say we care about? That we care about the issues that we say we care about. A lot of people will say, you know, I really, really wanted to help. It never helps to say that. I, I want you to know that I really wanted to be there. So where were you? I really wanted to help. I really wanted to give. Then where were you? That's like the Samaritan saying, you know, I felt so bad for him. I really wanted to bandage him up. Did you? And he did. Love You know you're loving your neighbor when you're indiscriminate from the heart level, when you're spontaneous, it's not planned, when you have true compassion for people, when it's practical. And number five, when you are burdening to yourself with the burdens of others. The Samaritan took him. Now you're thinking, 18-mile journey. I can't even drive 17 miles. That's how far it takes to go from my home to the church. And that's tiring. All I'm doing is sitting in the car, moving my foot up and down, and that's tiring. He had to walk that 18-mile journey, and he was thinking, well, at least I have a donkey, but there's a half-dead guy. And so what happens? He puts the guy on the beast, if it was a donkey or whatever kind of beast it was, and guess what? Which meant that he had to... He had to walk. His life just got a whole lot more difficult for him to make someone else's life easier. When I, um, and it, the guy can't walk. The guy can't move around. And uh, it's amazing how difficult it is to travel that kind of terrain, right? Because it's, it's a downward path. And there, were, there was no asphalt back then. How difficult it is to actually travel that kind of terrain with someone who can't walk. Uh, I experienced this recently when I led a, a, a middle school retreat, which I almost died from, uh, when you try leading a retreat with a bunch of middle schoolers. And right before one of our games, one of the girls went up to one of the boys out of anger, and he was lying down, and stomped on the middle of his thigh. And this boy was about the size of my son, and... He didn't break his thigh, but injured it to the point where he couldn't walk. And I'm thinking, I don't want to get sued, so I'm going to go take care of him. 
and so we took him to the first aid station, and there's no nurse there because it was the weekend, and they just have the stuff, and I'm thinking, where's Jane Schindler? She could do this right now. But she wasn't there. Uh, I was there, and so we got him fixed up, iced him, and then I said, can you still walk? And he said, I can't move. The reason why I'm sharing this story is because I recently talked to him. He's still one of my students, and we were joking about it the other day. And, and so I got him on the wheelchair, and the campsite isn't flat. It's hilly, up and down. To go anywhere, you have to go up and down. And I'm pushing him on this wheelchair, uh, up and down. And I finally told him, as we were walking up one hill, you owe me 50 cents for every step I take to get up this hill. Because it was a burden. And then I got to the point where it got so burdening for me that I'm thinking, I just can't do this anymore. And so I said, oh, there's a spider. And he jumped out of his wheelchair. I'm thinking, and so I asked him the other day, you were faking it the whole time. Well, no, I wasn't, but my mom said I was too. So it's hard, but this guy is willing to walk. This Samaritan is willing to walk. Put the guy on. Why? Because Galatians 6.2 says that love or we need to, to fulfill the law of Christ, bear one another's burdens. What does that mean? A burden is something that makes your life more difficult. We take the burden off of them. We put it on us. You're willing for someone's life to become easier, even if yours gets harder. That's what true neighborly love looks like. You are willing for your life to get harder in order for someone else's life to get easier. And you don't complain about it. The Samaritan didn't think, I'm tired. He just, put him on the, he just put him on the beast. He walked and took him to the inn. That's number five. Number six, you know you're loving your neighbor as yourself when you are interruptible, when people truly need you. You have to think, he was on a journey. He had his own agenda. Now, if you're like some of us who are type, not type A, but type triple A, I need to follow my schedule. I have, a, I, have a, I have a lot of stuff that I need to get done. And every minute counts. He's on a journey. He sees him. Takes time to bandage up the wounds. Takes time to pour oil. Gets him on the beast. And then has to go and walk some other direction. Take him to the inn and then stayed with him until the next day. So when you do the math there, if he was likely journeying during the daytime and then he stays till the next day, then that's at least 12 hours out of your schedule, at least. Probably closer to 18 or 24. You just put, he had to put his entire schedule aside. Everything got thrown out the window. Because he knew that leaving, bandaging someone who's half dead and just doing that and leaving him there, that's like you seeing someone who's just about to pass out in the desert and going up to him and giving him one ice cube and saying, well, I hope this helps. And then you walk away. Or you're driving in a snowstorm and you see someone without clothes who's freezing and you say, you know what? Here's a cup of hot chocolate, but I got to go. You can't leave someone half dead there. And so he takes him puts him in his donkey, walks all the way to the inn. His entire schedule is now set aside. It's out the window. He just got interrupted, and he didn't care. One of the ways to test out where your love is with people is how interruptible you are. That was something that was pointed out uh, by 
John MacArthur in the ministry of Jesus, how Jesus was interruptible. If you can only love people, if it fits conveniently in your Outlook spreadsheet, it's not love. Because one of the things you realize, which I mentioned earlier, is that your neighbor's life doesn't follow your schedule. They don't choose to suffer when they know you're free. Because the universe doesn't run according to your schedule. And that's why one of the marks of a truly loving person is he doesn't advertise how busy he is or she is. The reason why they're busy is because they always make time for people. The people who are truly busy are the people who always seem like they're free because they're always making time and they're always willing to be interrupted for an actual need. They make time for you no matter what's happening in their schedule. They deal with spontaneous suffering well. People need to know that they are more important than your schedule. It doesn't mean they can't monopolize your time. But if unlike the Samaritan, you can't be interrupted in your journey, then you're not loving your neighbor as yourself. Love to your neighbor is indiscriminate, it's spontaneous, it's compassionate, it's practical, it's burdening, it's interruptible. Number seven, it's lavish in how you bless people. He took out the next day, after he's gone through enough, he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper to pay for. Now, that wasn't the cost of it. because Now, if you're a kid here, I know you're not in children's church, but uh, if you're in fifth grade or below and you're starting your multiplication of fractions, take two and divide it by one over 30. Because one over 30 is how much it would cost to pay for an inn for a day. He gave him two denarii. What's two divided by one over 30? By the way, just flip it. Two times 30 is 60. So he gave him enough money to keep him at that inn for 60 days. Because that's, on average, how much it would cost back then to pay for someone's night at an inn or someone's day at an inn. He gave him two denarii, which was, by the way, worth a day's worth of wages. So today in Cupertino, where the average salary is 130K, that's like giving someone $700 at an inn where the daily rate is $10 or $11 a day. In other words, I'm putting enough money for him to stay at this place for the next two months if he needs to. You know, we feel good every time we stop by and give a homeless person a dollar. And yet the truth is we want more for our lives and our families than just the bare necessities. We all, we all desire luxuries to some level. And people who love their neighbors as themselves don't treat people cheaply. They don't look for the least expensive ways to help people. They go above and beyond paying for two whole months, even though he's never met this person. 
When was the last time you did bless someone, a needy person, who could never pay you back the way the Samaritan did? And Jesus said, go do likewise. If you want to fulfill this commandment, go do likewise. And therefore, it leads to number eight. In its lavishness, love is sacrificial. He could have said, you know what? I've done enough. I've bandaged him. I gave him two months at this inn. He can at least pay me back a quarter. But he said, he told the innkeeper, he said, on the next day, you take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I return, oh, he's planning to come back. I'm going to go check on him. Whatever more you spent, I will repay you. He would charge absolutely nothing from the half-dead person, even after he was healed. I will repay you, he says. The issue, when it comes to love and Christians in the church... What's keeping most of us from loving our neighbor as ourselves isn't malice. If you spend enough time in the church, people are, are very nice people. What keeps us from loving our neighbors as ourselves is, is self-absorption. We think about ourselves all the time. And we're always wanting to gain, and we are so afraid to lose. And whenever we give, a part of us is waiting for something to come back. True neighborly love, as shown here, goes above and beyond and does not expect or ask anything in return. And so when people say and people complain that I feel like I'm just giving and giving and giving and I'm not getting anything back, then what's the problem? That's called love. You, you lay down your life. Didn't Jesus say that? This is the greatest form of love, that you lay down your life for your friend. And when you lay down your life for your friend, you let them live even if you have to die. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You love your wife when you think this. Well, I'm going to do this so I don't get in trouble. No, 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 not that. You'll get in trouble anyway. You love your wife in this way. I'm going to do this for her. I'm going to give myself up for her. Because if one life has to go, it will be mine. And we love our neighbor as ourselves like that. In other words, whenever you interact with a person, no matter who that person is, where they're from, this is what you're thinking. If someone's life has to go, let it be mine. Love your neighbor as yourself. You lay down your life for another person, not so you can get that life back, but so you can give another person another opportunity to live, even if it means that you have to die. And so do you feel gypped by God when after all that you've done for people, you see no net gain? If you were expecting something in return, there was another fuel there than the love for your neighbor. So what I want you to do now is look at those eight things right now. 
And I want you to circle the ones that you think you're doing well. This is what's required for you to inherit eternal life by your own deeds. You want to stand justified before God by the works of the law? Then do this. Have absolutely no racism in your heart. Be spontaneous and unplanned. Have true compassion. Don't ever think about yourself. Be practical. Let your life get harder to the point where it gets burdensome. Be interrupted in your schedule. Be lavish in the way you bless people and give up your life so that another person can live. And so Jesus finally asks this person, so which of these three? You're trying to figure out? You're trying to justify yourself? Make yourself look good in front of the people? Which one acted as a neighbor? The lawyer was smart. He said, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said, go and do the same. If you want to inherit eternal life on your own merit, go and do the same. And if you're looking at that sheet of paper and you're thinking, I don't do any of these. Similar to a story where I, I don't often do this, but I went, through a, I went through a lesson called What He Must Be. Telling these middle school students what a godly man ought to be like. And telling the girls, this is the only kind of guy you should marry. And I told all the guys, I'm going to make it impossible for you to get married. <laughs> and afterwards, one of the boys came up and said, I am not any of those. If you are looking at your sheet right now and you're thinking, I think I'm doing okay, then you are completely deluded, just like the lawyer. But if you are looking at that sheet and thinking, the only way then for me to have eternal life is if my failure to do this gets atoned for, then you will go home justified. Because when it comes to loving your neighbor as yourself, we shouldn't be looking at anybody else but ourselves. You, you go and do likewise. Examine yourself. Evaluate yourself. Don't try to justify yourself. The only love that you need to be evaluating is your own. And the whole point of this passage, unlike what the lawyer thought, is not for you to justify yourself and condemn other people. It's to show you that by the works of the law, no man, no man can be justified. If the mandate in order to go to heaven on your own works, is to love your neighbor as yourself and to do it perfectly, then we have all brought hell upon ourselves. So that no man may boast you're saved by faith and not by the works of the law. Because he who knew no sin, he who loved perfectly, Jesus, who while we were still sinners, died for us. And remember what Paul said. 
I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. In other words, I'm not going to be known as someone who loved people. I'm going to be known as someone who was loved by the Son of God himself, who loved me and definitely gave himself up for me. He who knew no sin, who loved people perfectly, became sin, was treated as if he did our own acts so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. By faith we are saved, and because he is the fulfillment of the law, and because Christ is being formed in us, and because we are being transformed now into his image from one degree of glory to another as we behold Christ, now we can as Paul said, be imitators of God and walk in love just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the love of Christ that was shown to us. We have all failed in how we've loved people and the commandment to love our neighbor as ourselves. but we thank you for the love that was shown to us and the love that we now get to walk in. And I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would enable us to walk as Christ walked, to honor him, uh, to bask in the love that he has for us that has saved us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.